Listen, everyone, to the words of Paul from Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 to 26. Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I am in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. But it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain, and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith, so that through my being with you again, your boasting in Christ Jesus will abound on account of me. So there's a number of ways you can organize your life. I think probably the most natural way to organize your life, because it comes natural because it just comes natural, but also because our culture encourages it, is to put the self at the center. So Ron, can you put up the first slide? So this is literally a self-centered life. You are at the center of your life, and you uh, you know, not just you, but your hopes, your ambitions, your comforts, your desires, maybe even your behavior and your goodness. This all lies at the center of your life. So this is where your best energy is directed towards. And Jesus might be somewhere in that picture. Um, I've kind of got some different representations. Other people, causes, maybe family, and then the gospel and Jesus. 
And Jesus is often, if you're a Christian, somewhere in there, but the point of Jesus is to kind of help drive forward your ambitions. Jesus helps you fulfill those things that you want to be fulfilled. So that's the self-centered life. But there's another way. You can go on to the next one. There's other ways you can organize your life. You can put, you can do an other-centered life. So even though it comes natural, I think, to put ourselves at the center of our world, our, our goals, our successes, often I think as we get older, we realize this can be a pretty shallow way to live. So we, I think naturally as humans, we hunger for something bigger than ourselves. We, we realize even when we achieve this success, it feels kind of shallow, it feels hollow, and so we want to give our life to something bigger. So we can put like a cause at the center of that. I mean, that could be the cause of peace. That could be social justice. That could be our family. Our cause is our family. It could be our kids. It could be our grandkids. And again, Jesus might be somewhere in the picture there. Maybe Jesus is giving inspiration for putting that other thing in the center. But he's still on the edge. And then one final kind of way I was thinking about we can organize our life. This would be a Jesus or a gospel-centered way of organizing your life. There's these other things, other people, yourself, work, causes, but they're all on the edges. It's the gospel that's at the center. And what I want you to see in this passage today is a model through Paul of what a gospel-centered life looks like. What does it mean, in Paul's case, when every aspect of his life, his comforts, his ambitions, his circumstances, even his death, is being shaped and molded by the gospel of Jesus Christ. But you can take that down. Thanks, Ron. So let's just take a minute here to think about this is much bigger than I have time for. What is the contents of the gospel? I mentioned last, I think it was last week, this word fellowship, koinonia. We kind of banter that around. We throw that around, and we're not exactly sure after a while what we're saying. I think gospel is even more uh, prone to doing that. What are we talking about when we're talking about the gospel? I think for me, anyways, I like language. I think it helps to kind of break down the word. And in Greek, you have the euangelion, which means literally good, you, and angelion, which means message or announcement. And in English, we, the, where we get this word gospel is from the old English godspell, which also means good news. The challenge in English is we, we've got this word gospel, but we don't really have, uh, um, we don't have the practice around which this world word centers. So, for example, back in Paul's day, you would have messengers, and this messenger would be sent out on foot carrying a message to be publicly announced. So, for example, there's, a, there's been a decisive victory, a military victory on the battlefield. A new king has ascended the throne, uh, and the messenger is sent out with that message to announce it, to herald that. And, you know, the, the, the messenger could carry a good message, the euangelion, the messenger could carry a bad message, the kak angelion. Kak means bad, angelia means announcement, so it could be one or the other. It could be that the foreign army is advancing, like run for your lives. It could be the king is dead. So kind of take a second. Now imagine with, you know, before mass communication a long time ago, you're in a village and 25 miles down the road, you know a massive battle is happening, okay? And the foreign army is advancing, your king has sent everything that king has to try to stop that army, okay? That's happening 25 miles. You don't know what's happening in the battle. You look up, across the horizon, a messenger is running, right? A, a, 
Someone who would be, do this would be fast on their feet. And they would run, be exhausted, and catch their breath. And you would be waiting, what is the news from the battlefront? And the person, he announces the euangelion. The, this army has been stopped. The village is safe. Euangelion, good news. So here's my question for you. Is this good news about you? Is it about you? Is the announcement about the battle about you? No, not really. It's about the battle that's happening 25 miles down the road. You're not at the center of that announcement. Now, does that announcement have benefits to you? Absolutely. Like, right, in this case, like you, you don't have to pack up and leave your village. You can live for another day or whatever. Paul is moving, so, so think about that. Paul is moving through the Mediterranean world and he's announcing the gospel, okay? Is that announcement at its center about your hopes and your dreams and your life? No, it's not actually. First and foremost, this is an announcement about Jesus Christ, who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. And Paul is saying, this person, uh, as a Jewish man, this person I've been waiting all my life for, this royal figure that in this great story that stretches all the way back to David and beyond, he has come to rescue us. But he was killed. He was raised to the dead. From the, he was raised from the dead. Now this, this Messiah figure, he sits at the right hand of the Father and reigns as king. So in other words, Paul is announcing a great victory. A new king has ascended the throne. A king is not Caesar. So the gospel, I want you to see this, is first and foremost about Jesus Christ and what he has done, not about us. But just like that announcement about the battle of 25 miles down the road, this announcement brings massive benefits to us and massive benefits to the people that Paul is heralding it to. Because Jesus' death on the cross, forgiveness of sins are now possible. Peace with God and peace with others is possible. Through, through Jesus' spirit, now we have this energizing presence in our lives which gives the power to transform us right here and right now. Jesus was raised from the dead. Jesus that gives hope to those who put their trust in Jesus that they too will be raised from the dead one day. That is good news. Okay? That is good news. It offers hope. It offers joy. It offers security. It offers the, the potential to, for transformation in your life because it's not about you. It's not about me. Okay? So, so what I want you to think of is how do you move from this natural place of putting yourself at the center and self-absorption? And I think we get a really good, helpful lesson from Paul here. What we do is we replace the self with something so much bigger and so much more epic. So Lynn Coek in her, in her commentary on Philippians, she, she talks about resizing the characters in the story. We've got, everyone lives in a story, and we've got characters in the story. And oftentimes in our story, like, we're the main character, okay? And now again, Jesus is somewhere over there. He, he has a role in all this. And Lynn, and Lynn says, you want to get away from self-absorption? Make Jesus and the gospel a big and tall and worthy gospel. and Make yourself small. That's an epic story worth giving your life to. Now, if, Jesus, if the gospel is just Jesus died for your sins and therefore you get a ticket to heaven, that gospel is too small. Who's at the center of that gospel? Jesus died for me so that I could go to heaven. That gospel is too small. Is that true? I'm not saying that's not true. I'm saying that gospel is too small. 
That story is too small. Paul's gospel revolves around King Jesus, and it is a big gospel. And there are massive benefits to those who give their trust and allegiance to that king, like forgiveness of sins, like eternal life. But it is so much bigger than that. Or, I might step on some toes here. Hopefully I'm stepping on everyone's toes. Because as Mennonites, sometimes we critique that gospel. We say that gospel is too truncated, that gospel is too small. But if your gospel is peace, guess what? Your gospel is too small. Your gospel is too small. If peace is at the center of your gospel, your gospel is too small. Should peace flow out of the gospel? Absolutely. Do I think peace is an essential part of discipleship? Absolutely. But it's not the gospel. That gospel is way too small. That gospel can actually push the gospel of Jesus Christ out of the center, and you have to be careful with it. Okay, so here's my first point. You want to live a gospel-centered life, you need a big gospel. You need a big gospel. You need an epic story. And one of the ways you can kind of practically do this, I told this, I said this two weeks ago, this Christ hymn in uh, the second chapter of Philippians, I'm encouraging the congregation to memorize it. And this tells in poetic form a summary of this gospel. And I want you to look at that story and tell me, who is at the center of that story? Like, you and I show up later on in that story with our knees bended before Jesus, to the glory of the Father. That's where we show up in that story. Jesus is at the center of that story, okay? So that's one way, one practical way. I can rehearse the gospel in my mind and remind me about what is, what is the gospel. And Paul does such a good job in, in the second chapter of telling that in this beautiful form. All right. So this is what I'm saying sits at the center of Paul's life, this big gospel. But I want to say, how does that inform his life? What, what difference does that make? So kind of remember this, if you've, We've been in Philippians for a couple weeks. Paul's in prison. Uh, Epaphroditus was sent to Paul to help support him. And now Epaphroditus is going to come back with this letter and give give this letter to the church in Philippi. And the first thing they're going to want to know, like, okay, the greeting, okay, the thanks, the prayer, but how are you, Paul? Like, how are you doing? So, you know, not a lot of the brothers and sisters at Midway are, are currently in prison, thankfully. But there are a number of brothers and sisters uh, in our congregation that are in assisted living. And I'm, I should probably say I'm not comparing prison and assisted living, although during COVID, there's some similarities. Here's my point. When we check on them, when we know those who are in assisted living, what do you want to know? How's their health? Like, are they getting good care? Are the nurses doing a good job of caring for them? How's the food? Are you comfortable? And you know the Philippians are going to have similar concerns about Paul. They love Paul the way you love your brothers and sisters who are maybe in assisted care right now. And they want to know, how are you doing? But notice that Paul basically takes zero time to talk about his circumstances. Like, and I'm sure Paul had plenty to complain about. But notice, he doesn't, he doesn't go there. Instead, what does he do? He only talks about his circumstances as they relate to the advance of the gospel. So he says, yeah, I want you to know I've been imprisoned. And actually, that has helped advance the good news, the gospel. So Paul, he gives a couple examples. He says, this palace guard, uh, these powerful, this Roman, this uh, would have been these elite Roman soldiers, because I'm in prison, they know about the gospel. They know about Jesus. They know about King Jesus. They know about this new king that's ascended the throne. But not only that, Paul says, you know, actually, other brothers and sisters, they're being emboldened to 
preach the gospel because I'm in prison without fear. And this is, think about it, this is surprising. You would think that the complete opposite would happen. Paul is in prison, he's chained up. Uh, you would think the complete opposite. The message has stopped. The message can advance. Or you would think, I would think people see Paul getting in trouble for preaching the gospel and it doesn't embolden them. It makes them like, oh man, I'm worried. I don't know if I want to do this. But Paul says, hey, actually the exact opposite is happening. But I want you to notice something here. Paul is not saying uh, to the Philippians, hey, me in prison, me being in chains, this is a good thing. Like, Paul does not see being in prison as a good thing. Remember, Paul is an apostle. He wants to be out doing what apostles do, which is spread the message, which is announce this good news about Jesus Christ. As N.T. Wright puts it, it's like a concert pianist with their hands tied behind their back. So, you know, imagine someone who's got all these, like, mad skills with the piano and passion and desire, and they're right in front of the piano, and their hands are tied behind their back. I can't play like, that's probably how Paul feels. Like, he's got this burning passion to be out there spreading this news, and yet he's in prison. He's not, Paul's not rejoicing because of his circumstances. Rather, Paul is rejoicing because God has taken these circumstances, these really bad circumstances, and he's used them for his purposes. As, as one person put it, they can, he, they can imprison Paul, but they can't imprison the message. That message, even despite the imprisonment, is getting out, and it gives Paul joy. But here's what I want you to notice. That joy is only possible if the gospel in Jesus is at the center of Paul's life. Anything else is at the center. Paul's comfort is at the center. Paul's ambitions are at the center. Paul's big cause is at the center. No way he's going to be joyful. I don't think I have to make a hard case to you that hardship and suffering are part of life. I don't think I have to argue that. And I think especially in the midst of suffering and hardship, I think it's really hard to, to make sense of what's happening, right? The most understandable question is, why is this happening? Why is God allowing this suffering to happen to me or maybe to someone I love? And I think we just need to name um, with some humility, first off, there is a mystery to suffering. I don't think we should try to fully explain suffering. I don't think we're going to fully understand suffering. I think sometimes we, we do a disservice, especially to other people in the midst of suffering, when we try to explain suffering, okay? I think we can say safely that God is not the author of suffering, okay? God's, uh, we, we, the Sunday school class looked at the first chapter of Genesis. We see that God's creation was good. Everything, good, 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 right? We didn't see suffering in there, okay? But, but what we're able to see here is that God has the ability to take that suffering, those circumstances that Paul does not want, and, and, and make good out of it. In other words, God can take suffering and, re, and redeem it for his purposes. And, and this is what I think is, so how do we know this? How does Paul know this? Because at the center of that gospel that he's proclaiming is exactly that. At the center of the good message of the gospel is humiliation and shame and death. At, this, at the center of this grand epic story is the horrible and shameful crucifixion of Jesus. And guess what? That's what God uses to redeem the world. Okay? What gives Paul confidence that God can redeem suffering? He did it. He used suffering to redeem the world. God took what was, I mean, crucifixion doesn't look as foolish or shameful to us, but remember, this is the most shameful way to die. God takes what's foolish. God takes what's shameful. 
God takes what people think is weak in the world, and that's what God uses to save the world. That's why this story is so epic, right? This is such a great story. Like, look at Hollywood. When they try to recreate a story again and again and again, they try to recreate this story because it's the story. But let's think about this on a more personal level. Like, can God do this in my life? And I, I, I want to just, I'm going to give an example just that's been on my mind recently. I was out, most of you know, I was out in Colorado for a couple months, and I, and I traveled back through western South Dakota uh, and visited an aunt and uncle I have out there. So a couple of years ago, I felt pretty distant from this diagnosis because I was out here, but my aunt was uh, diagnosed with multiple myeloma. So if you know that, it's incurable blood cancer. So this woman who's, you know, not that old, uh, all of a sudden goes from having this full life ahead of her to just in this matter of weeks and days to having no idea how long she's going to live and, and kind of having some serious doubts about whether she's going to live very much longer. And so while, while Christiana and I, my family, are visiting, we sat around the table and we just talked about this. And, um, and, and they, uh, they, they were very honest about just how challenging of an experience this has been. So they, they moved to Houston for months and months to receive treatment for her, uh, painful and intense treatment. They, uh, she's been close to dying a couple times. She's, she's currently homebound because she has like no immunity in her system, so she can't, you know, even a common cold could be a threat to her life. And so neither of them tried to pretend like this has been such a, a blessing. This has been horrible. This has been awful. But here's what stuck out to me. Again and again in the conversation, they came back to talking about how God had worked through this cancer in their lives. So, for example, my uncle, he, he shares the story. He said, you know, I, I have struggled with control basically all my life. Like control is a big deal to me. And he said, you know, not long after, you know, my aunt, my aunt was diagnosed, they're scheduled the next day to fly down to, to Houston to begin treatment. So western South Dakota in the middle of winter, it's bitterly cold, about to fly out, you know, to begin treatment on incurable cancer. And he says they lose heat and water in their house. And on top of that, like, there's so much ice that's building up on the roof that they're afraid that that might collapse. And to add even more craziness, when they finally get on a plane later that day, uh, the, the door of the plane doesn't seal, and they lose cabin pressure, and they almost die because unless they were monitoring my aunt's oxygen, they likely would have died. Okay? So amidst all that, he goes out in the bitter cold in the middle of the night to try to get his water going, and he realizes, I can't do this. I've lost all control. Literally, I have no control. This is all I can do is say, you've got to get, through. You gotta get me through this, God. Now, a couple years later, he says, yeah, God has been faithful to that. And then my aunt talked about how, in her experience, she, she, she never had an experience where God spoke to her. I mean, some of you out there right now might have one moment in your life where you felt God spoke to you. She said, you know, I never had that. And we were corresponding over email this week, and she said, you know, I've been asking for years for God to make God's presence known to her. And she said, I feel, I felt for Thomas. You know, he wanted to touch the holes in Jesus' hands and feet. And he said, my mathematical mind, my, my mind wanted something tangible, logical, something that I could quantify my faith with. And she said, all of a sudden, after this diagnosis, all she had was faith, right? Everything had been stripped back in her life. Her hopes, her dreams, what she thought was going to be in her future. And amidst all this physical and emotional and spiritual pain for the cancer, 
He said, I heard a still and quiet voice calming my thoughts and emotions. That, are, that in the midst of all these dreams being stripped back, she wrote, I realized I could say only you, Lord, are all I want and need. And she said, you know, I'm not saying God caused my cancer to feel him, but that was the result. I think that's important. Cancer is horrible. You can fill in the blank in your life, this was horrible. And yet, God can take that and make good out of it. And that's what Paul's modeling for us. I think this is so helpful, helpful for us as followers of Jesus. A gospel-centered life doesn't mean we call what is evil good. It doesn't mean we minimize pain or suffering or try to give trite answers in the midst of suffering. What it means is that we are able to say, I am suffering, and I am hopeful that God will take this suffering and use it for his purposes. That's what Paul's doing. I want to give you another example of how Paul's suffering. This is a little, little lighter, but you know, he's talking about how the gospel's advancing. He's excited about that. And he's saying, you no, know, some people are advancing the gospel, they're preaching it out of love. But he says, some people are actually doing it out of selfish ambition. They're actually doing it to, to cause me trouble. And he says, you know, but what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. Because of this, I rejoice. So Paul's sitting in prison, and not only is he suffering, but he's got this, he's got to deal with something really annoying. He's got people that are taking advantage of his circumstances in prison and using it to raise themselves and lower him. And I can, I can guarantee that Paul is ticked about this. Like, don't think about Paul kind of above the fray and, oh, it's okay. No, Paul, I mean, you know, Paul is probably seething about like imagine like you at your place of employment, you get sick, you got to spend an extended period of time at home, and you find out that while you've been out of work, someone has moved in and taken advantage of that and used it to advance their own career, their own job at the expense of yours. Like, do you say, are you able to say like, yeah, it's really unfair and just, but you know, the good of the company or the good of the organization, I, that's above all else, so I can handle it. Like, that, I doubt it. Not, not me. I, I'm 100% confident that Paul is super upset about what's happening. And yet, Paul finds a way to replace indignation with forgiveness and bitterness with joy. Like, how does he do that? Like, don't you want to know how to do that? Because most of this, maybe not to that degree, this will happen to us at some point in our life. We will be very angry about something that someone takes advantage of it and uses it for their purposes at the cost of us. How do you do that? Because he has a gospel-centered life. Remember, I, I told you in the first week, Paul is living in a culture in which honor is everything. And now people have taken advantage of his circumstances to increase their honor at the cost of his. If, if honor and status is at the center of Paul's life, he is crushed at this point. He is crushed gospel. If the honor of Jesus Christ is at the center of Paul's life, he can be annoyed and still rejoice. You can be annoyed and think something's unfair, but if the gospel is at the center of life, you can still rejoice because Christ is being preached. That's the thing that's most important. That's what's driving him in his life. As the, as the gospel of Jesus Christ becomes more and more and more central to our lives, it gives us the power to deal with these situations. These situations that might under, make us bitter, make us angry, they don't make everything all right, but they give us the resources to then 
transform those. Like when we don't get credit for something that we should have gotten credit for, we might be annoyed. We're going to have to take revenge. But here's, here's the kind of final thing I want you to see. Not only is the gospel at center, at the center of Paul's life, it's at the center of his death. So he's, you know, he's, again, he's sitting in prison, and Paul kind of sees these two possible paths laid out before him. So here's path one, he dies. Here's path two, he lives, and he's able to continue his ministry of advancing the gospel. And, but here's what I want you to notice. Both these paths lead to Jesus. So on the one hand, if, if, if Paul takes the path that leads to death, he is convinced that will only lead him to Jesus. But on the other hand, if he lives, if he takes the other path, he's convinced that it will lead to fruitful labor for Jesus Christ. So both of these paths end with Jesus. Paul's overall desire, the thing he wants more than anything else in the world, is to be with Jesus and to serve Jesus. That's what's at the center of his life. So he can look at these two different paths and say, that one leads to Jesus, and this one leads to Jesus. Uh, you can put up that last slide. This is Lynn Kohick again. She says this. In these words, the apostle carves out a path that we can follow, taking care to avoid sliding into complete immersion with the cares and triumphs of the world, or slipping into total disregard for the world's plight, only to gaze with unholy stubbornness toward heaven. So I think what she's saying is that there's these two temptations we often have as followers of Jesus. On the one hand, we can live our lives consumed uh, with the cares and triumphs of the world. Right? If you go back uh, to, to the drawings I showed you up front, the, the, the self is at the center. And the problem, you can take that off. Now, the problem with that is that when we link our joy to that, it's very tenuous. Okay? If the thing that, that gives us the greatest joy uh, stands in the middle, whether it's our work or our family or our spouse or our money or whatever, like if you're always going to feel like it, it's about to slip away. Like even when you attain that thing, even when you got it, you're always going to be afraid that you're going to lose it because there's a good chance you could lose it, right? You could die. You could, your spouse could die. You're, lots of bad things can happen. You could lose your money. And whatever's propping up that joy, it, it's, it's just going to feel really tenuous. Okay, so that's a problem. But there's another problem that Lynn says is that we can, we can be so kind of stubbornly uh, our view on heaven that we ignore the plight of the world around us. You know, so I'm going to heaven soon. I'm not going to really worry about the people that are around me. I think this is a good reminder. I mean, we have a little bit of an older congregation. I just want to say this is a good reminder. You do not retire from being a disciple of Jesus. Like, there's no, like, age in discipleship where you're like, yeah, you reach that age and you can just kind of coast the rest of the time. That doesn't mean that you're not going to be limited by certain things, by your physical health, you're going to have less energy. No, that's not. You never retire from being a disciple of Jesus. You're done when you take your last breath. That's when you're done being a disciple of Jesus. And Paul, man, he, he gives us a model of finishing strong. Okay? If I don't die and I go the other way, I'm going to finish strong. It's going to mean fruitful labor. It's going to be investing in other people. It's going to be investing in, in the progress of their faith and their joy. See, it's still, he's, he's other centered, but always it's the gospel at the very center. And Paul, man, Paul is free. Isn't that what we, isn't that what we want? We want to feel free. And Paul is free because the thing he loves most cannot be taken from him. And that's why he can arrive and say, for to me, to live is Christ, die is gain. 
I can't lose. Paul has centered his life around a message, an announcement, a story that is so epic and so good that he can give his life to. Not just part of his life, he can give all his life to. If you're, a, if you're currently a follower of Jesus, I invite you and myself to just look at Paul and the example he modeled. How do we decenter this other stuff that competes for the center and get the gospel and get Jesus Christ right in the center? If you're not a follower of Jesus, if you're not familiar with this story, I invite you to, to hang out with us, to hang out, to talk to mature believers, to talk with me and learn more about this epic story. It's the only story worth giving your life to. Let's pray. God, I thank you for Paul's example. Amidst the suffering and the hardship and the things that just annoy him, he can still rejoice because you and your gospel is at the center of his life. We want to be a people, not just individuals, but a congregation that is gospel-centered. I just pray, Lord, that you would grow our love, as we talked about last week. You would grow our wisdom and knowledge that we can become a gospel-centered church. And I ask this all in Jesus' name.